Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, been going through the book of Samuel, uh, preaching expositorily through chapter by chapter. We're going to take the entire chapter this morning, and um, I've asked Kimberly Payne if you will come up and read for us. This is God's holy, inspired word. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. 
Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Let's pray. Father, I pray that through this account in your word, we would learn what it looks like to, to follow you. God, I pray that you would, you would speak to our hearts, you would, you would open up our minds, God, you would enable us to see you and to see what it looks like to follow the king. What does it look like to, to give ourselves to the anointed one? God, I pray that you would um, have grace on all of us who are hearing your word, that you would speak to us individually, God, and corporately, God, I pray, as well that you would strengthen me as I speak. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I'm not exactly sure what inspired my eight-year-old mind to want to be blood brothers with my best friend Jason at the time, but when I was about eight years old, I think, somewhere around that time, Jason and I, we, we entered into a, a blood covenant of sorts. I don't know where we got the idea, but we cut our hands and we, we joined our hands together. And it was a really dramatic moment. We were in our little fort behind his house and behind the trees. And, and we solemnly swore that we'd be committed to each other for life. And it was a momentous occasion. I don't know where, <laughs> I don't know where we learned that if we saw an old Lone Ranger episode. If you remember, um, they... The Lone Ranger was nursed back to health by a Native American named Tonto, and uh, they became blood brothers, and they swore an allegiance to each other, and they, were, they never parted each other's side. Or I don't know if we watched some old 80s movie or where we saw that, but the idea of having a blood brother was one that really resonated with us as kids. Um, back in the 70s and the 80s, we, we just, we, we wanted... We wanted to have somebody we could trust in, and we, we thought it was noble to have, have this kind of commitment to another person, and we swore that we would, we would love each other the rest of our lives. We admired each other. We had affection for each other. We committed through thick and thin of boyhood and all the ups and downs that that entailed, and we, you know, we both loved action. We both loved adventure. We both loved playing war and watching MASH. I don't know if you remember. It's an old show, but... We loved war movies and bike riding and chess and adventuring. We did everything together, and no matter what other friends came in our lives at the time, we, we really weren't worried about the friendship with the other one because we knew that we were blood brothers, right? No other friend can compete with that. Until high school, we went different ways, and my family moved away. But, you know, it's funny. A few years ago, I reconnected with my friend Jason online, and we lost track of each other for, I don't know, 20-some years, and reconnected on Facebook of all places, and... It was funny, I, I, I wrote a long letter back, basically back to him and 
filled them in on what my life was, what was going on in my life. And it was interesting that we both found that we shared some of the same interests. And we still had that same commitment to each other. We don't really talk. We're not really around each other. He lives in Virginia. We have very different lives. But if he had something major happen in his life, a need, and he said, hey, would you come up? I, I think I would drop most everything. Now, I wouldn't ignore my family, but to, to help him out. And there's this commitment that still remains, and it's kind of funny. I never thought that that boyhood commitment would st- will still be there. And you don't have that kind of bond with very many people. But I think the idea appealed to us because we wanted, we wanted surety and honor and valor, and the idea is stuck and we entered in this kind of sort of covenant. What we see in this passage with David and Jonathan, it's maybe the best example of, of blood brothers, if you will. Now, we don't know that they actually cut their hands or anything like that, but then we, we know that they made a covenant with each other. And often in that day, covenants entailed shedding of blood in some way. And so David and Jonathan are probably the best example of this covenant commitment, this covenant love for, for your friend, for a best friend that's closer than a brother. Um, throughout the book of, of Samuel, and we've, we've gone through it week after week, the, the, the narrative's focused on different people. The narrative has focused, you know, originally on, on Hannah and the example that she was of, of faith in the coming king as she was looking forward to the coming king. And then um, the narrative shifted to Samuel, and, and then it shifted to Saul, and then we saw Saul's downfall, and then it shifted to David. And last week we saw that David was on the run, fleeing, looking for a place of refuge, and ultimately, no matter where he looked, he didn't find refuge in anyone ultimately, but he did find refuge in God. And this week, the narrative shifts back again. And even though David is in the narrative, he's not really the main character here. You know, and, and most of the time, David, David is an example of, of what the king looks like. And it helps us look for the king, look for the true king. And maybe even through his failures, look for the the, the true king won't disappoint. But in this passage, David doesn't perform very well, does he? Um, David, at the very beginning, he's scared. He's a little uncertain. All throughout the passage, I mean, he's, he's a little dubious about Jonathan's commitment to him. Um, he's fearful. He goes into hiding. He, he hides out in the field, and he stays there for a couple days, sleeping either beside or under a rock, or a pile of rocks. We're not exactly sure. But you don't get the picture of this brave man He's scared, he's fearful, he's confused. He doesn't seem very much like Jesus who very boldly set his face to go towards Jerusalem knowing suffering and death were coming and yet he was bold and heading towards suffering. David here, he's scared, he's fearful. But Jonathan, we have, we have really a great picture of Jonathan here when the narrative kind of, it focuses in. And Jonathan, he's in every scene and he's strong and he's in command. And there's something that's consistent all throughout. And I, I wonder if, if it's best for us to read this account of Jonathan and David and for us to say, okay, what does it look like? What is, what is Jonathan an example of? For the, for, the, for the Israelite reading this story, when they're seeing Jonathan, they're going to be inspired to see Jonathan as an example of what it looks like to follow God's anointed one, what it looks like to follow the king. And I think that's what God would have for us as well, is what does it look like if you, if you claim to be in covenant with, with Jesus, if you claim to have a relationship with Jesus, if you claim to follow the king, I think Jonathan is going to, going to show us what does it look like to faithfully follow the covenant king. What does it look like to follow God's anointed? And that's what we're going to learn about, what it means to follow Jesus as our king ultimately. Not, we don't follow David, but we follow the ultimate king that, that David looked forward to. And so the main idea I believe God would have us focus on this morning is that, that true covenant love for the king, it's lived out. Because that's what we see. Jonathan and David, they've got a covenant. And, and much more than... I have failed to live out my covenant in a sense with my friend Jason, although there's that commitment there and I have an, a sense of allegiance to him and affection for him. You know, I've, I've, not, I've not been there by his side. Jonathan here is, is by David's side every step along the way. He's the ultimate picture of true covenant love being lived out. You know, maybe this morning you're here and you, you, you're here with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse. And you can say you love them. 
But if they ask you to do something for them and you say no, and you say no consistently enough, they're probably going to doubt your affection for them. You're probably going to doubt your commitment to them because true kind of covenantal love or love that's committed is, is, is lived out. It's not just an emotion. You can say you love somebody, but if there's not an allegiance to that person, then it's really self-serving and not love at all. You can say you love somebody, but if you aren't committed to their person and their interests and their good, then it really isn't love, is it? It's just self-love. If you really love somebody, there'll be at least some kind of, of peace that results from that relationship with that person. And Jonathan here, he's an example of covenant love for the anointed one. And it's being seen in four ways in this passage, and it re- results in four ways. Because covenant love is always going to result in some things in our lives. If, if you have entered into relationship with Jesus. You've entered into a covenant that he makes with you in his blood. He's, he's made a new covenant in his blood and he, he in effect becomes our, the ultimate blood brother. And that covenant love, it, as, as he makes us alive in him and is that the results of that covenant have an effect in our lives, it's gonna be seen in some ways. And, and we see that really in Jonathan's life, that covenant love, the first thing we see out of the four ways is that, that covenant love, it results in a willingness to live for the anointed one. Covenant love, it results in this willingness to live for the anointed one. Beginning of the chapter, David's, he's fleeing from where Saul had hunted him down in Naioth and Ramah, and he goes back to see Jonathan because he is, he's uncertain. He doesn't know why Saul's pursuing him. He, he's went everywhere else, and he's not found safety. He's not found surety. So he goes back to the one place he knows he can trust is that covenant that he has with his brother, Jonathan. And so he goes and he asks a reasonable question. is, what have I done? He was perplexed. He was confused. He had done nothing to deserve being put to death. He hadn't sinned against Saul. He wasn't found guilty of any charge that deserved death. But, but Jonathan apparently was unaware of that. And Jonathan says, you know, what do you mean? My dad tells me everything. There's no way he's going to kill you because he shares every little detail of his life with me. And he's never said anything about wanting to kill you. We know he did before, you know, and, but Jonathan talked him out of that. But David, he's convinced that Saul is not oblivious to Jonathan's affection, his covenant love for David. And he says, Jonathan, you know, your dad is probably trying to, to spare your feelings by, by not telling you about his plans to kill me here. He doesn't want to upset you, so... So David, he makes an oath, and he says, as sure as God is alive and as sure as you're living, Jonathan, I promise I'm about a step away from death. And we see how Jonathan responds to that. Look down in verse 4. How does Jonathan respond to finding out that the one he's in covenant with is, is in danger? How does he respond? Look down at verse 4. Jonathan says to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Jonathan had a choice here, didn't he? He had a real choice. He he could choose to protect his father and his father's kingdom and actually his own kingdom. Think about it for a moment. You know, where, where, where should Jonathan have been loyal? He should have had some loyalty to his father, and we see that he actually does, but because he has a, a covenant with David, he's willing to do whatever David asks of him. There's a commitment that he's made. He has a, he's a willingness to, to give up his own kingdom and he, to choose whatever David wants to help protect his life. And he says, whatever you say, I'll do for you, David. And so David, he hatches this plan to make Saul's intentions regarding David clear to Jonathan. You know, David already knew Saul's intentions, but Jonathan was uncertain. So David wants Jonathan to know for sure and for it to become clear. And so they hatch this plan according to the book of Numbers, in case you're wondering what's this feast all about, um, the Israelites were to celebrate the new moon feast with, with burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And, and sometimes the new moon feast would take a couple days. If they couldn't see the moon on the first day, they would have a feast the second day. And that's probably what was happening here. And so they're celebrating burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And it would have been expected for the king and his royal court to participate in this, this celebration, this new moon festival. It would have been expected for David to be there. He was the son-in-law of the king after all. And so David, he's aware that he was supposed to be there and supposed to participate as a ranking member of Saul's court and the son-in-law. And so 
He says, David, he says to Jonathan, would you do me this favor? Would you grant me permission to not be at that feast? You're, you're the king's son. You have, you have the, the right to do that. You have the power, the rule to do that, the authority to do that. Would you grant me not to be there? And then let's, let's see. I'm going to hide out. I'm going to hide out. And let's have this plan. Um, if you will say that I'm, I'm going to my hometown in Bethlehem to go and and, and take, take care of the burnt offering sacrifices, this yearly thing with my family. If, if you'll say that, then we'll see whether or not he's really honoring me or whether he wants to do me harm by inviting me to this feast. And he says, if Saul's angry, it's gonna mean that Saul wants to you know, keep me away from my family gathering and it'll become clear his purposes are malicious. And before Jonathan could answer, what does David do? David appeals to the covenant that, that Jonathan had entered into him with with David before the Lord. And David says, he says, deal kindly with me. And, and that word for kindness, it means something. It's actually a covenantal word. It, it doesn't just, it just mean to be, be nice to somebody else. It's, it's a specific word that's a, a covenant faithfulness, a covenant mercy, a covenant, a covenant kind of kindness, a, a loving kindness, a faithfulness, a, a loyalty. And he says, deal with me in this covenant way as God deals that covenant way. So he's all 250 some times, almost 250 times that word is used in the Old Testament. It's almost always used as of God's covenant faithfulness. So David employs that same kind of word and, and calls Jonathan to account there. And Jonathan responds with a willingness to do whatever is necessary to honor his covenant, to honor his commitment. But David, he's still not asking to get away with any wrongdoing. And, and he says, in effect, if any guilt is found in me, then why don't you put me to death? And so it leads some to believe that, that maybe the covenant commitment that David made to Jonathan was that, hey, um, I, I'm committing to you that when I, I'm, I'm not going to push this thing. I'm not going to try to make myself king until God puts me in that place. And so I'm not going to do any harm to your father. And so he kind of words it in a way. He says, if there's any guilt in me, kill me yourself. And it kind of seems like meaning that if I've sinned against your father in any way, we're not sure exactly, but he says, instead of taking me to your father who I haven't sinned against. But Jonathan, Jonathan responds with this, this willingness to say, you know what, David, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm not going to put you to death. He says, far be it from me. And he promises to let David know. He says, surely I'm going to tell you. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to be faithful to my father. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm, I'm going to be willing to be faithful to you over my father. And if I find out that my father plans any harm against you, he says, I'm going to let you know. I'm willing to risk my own relationship with my father, my own kingdom. I'm willing to risk those things for your good, to, to protect you, to honor you. He's willing to do whatever it takes. And we have this, this picture here of of this, this covenantal love that results in this willingness to do whatever it takes. You know, I think initially we, we find that Jonathan had a lot of admiration for David. When Jonathan first comes on the scene in the book of Samuel, he's already this, this stud in his own right. He's, he comes on the scene, he's already brave, he's already noble, he's already faithful, he's the leader of a thousand people, thousand men. He, when everybody else shies away from encountering the Philistines, Jonathan goes out, just him and his armor bearer, and they go up and, and the, they say, hey, Philistines, um, we're going to conquer you. And so the Philistines say, come up, do your best. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer, they go up and they take out 20 people in the space of less than an acre. And so Jonathan, he kind of comes on the scene and he's this brave, noble warrior. He trusts in God in his own right. But then he sees David, and he sees that David is a man after God's own heart like himself, and that David is brave, and there's this admiration for David that results. And, and you see, when, when Jonathan sees David, and hears David reporting, David comes in, he's just killed the giant Goliath, and he's holding his head in his hands. Kind of a gruesome scene, but also it's kind of like this Braveheart scene too, right? Or maybe Gladiator or whatever if you can think of. And so Jonathan, David walks in and he's got the head of this giant Goliath and, David, and, and Jonathan sees him and he says, that is a man I want to follow. That's a man who trusts in God. That's a man, that's a man who follows the Lord. That's a man who clearly God's favor is on. 
You ever, you ever have that kind of relationship with somebody where you see, that's the kind of guy I want to be like. That's the kind of woman I want to be like if you're a woman. Um, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of life I want to live. And you see this, this picture of an ideal character. And you have admiration for them. And out of that admiration becomes affection and a commitment to them. And that's what we see in Jonathan. And that, that covenant And then Jonathan makes a covenant with David. It says, his heart was knit to David's, and he made a covenant with David then. And we see him living that covenant out right now. We see him in this passage. He's living out the covenant, and it results in a willingness to do whatever it takes because of his admiration and affection for the king. You know, as I was thinking through this, I was applying it to my own life and saying, you know, do I live like that? You know, do, do I have that kind of admiration for Jesus, the true king? When, you know, do, have you ever taken it upon yourself to read through the Gospels and you see who Jesus really is? You ever have those, those feelings of, oh boy, I, I can't believe, I can't believe the Son of God would live in this way. And you ever have those, those feelings of admiration well up in you? I hope you have. I, I hope those feelings of admiration actually resulted into you entering into a covenant love and commitment to the king is saying, I want to be like him. And the only way I can do that is if I partner together with him and he changes me and makes me different. It makes me alive. And, you know, does that, does that, do those feelings of admiration, do they well up in you? And have you made a covenant with Jesus? Have you, have you made a commitment to say, you know what, I, I want to give up everything to follow him. Whatever it takes. I, I, there's a, is there a willingness in you to, to give up whatever it takes, to do whatever it takes, to say, I want to follow Jesus no matter the cost? Because that's what we see in Jonathan. The question for you and I is, are, are we willing to do whatever it takes to follow the anointed one? And do we carry that out? And that's the next thing we see in Jonathan's his covenant love is not just a willingness. It's not just verbal he doesn't just use words. He does use words, and that's important. By the way, if you're married, I hope you use words in communicating your affection for your spouse and your commitment to them. If you don't, you need to start. I hope if you have committed your life to Jesus that you have used words in communicating your willingness to do whatever it takes to him, but don't let it stop there. It results really in this, in this allegiance to the anointed one. This, we see Jonathan's covenant love, the second way it results is it, it results in an allegiance to the anointed one. There's a story, if you remember back in, in 1931, I believe, it was Edward VIII. He became the king of the United Kingdom. And he was much celebrated. His father had passed away and, and everyone had placed their hopes in Edward VIII. They were in between World War I and on the brink of, of hostilities happening that were building eventually towards World War II. In 1931, the hope of the United Kingdom was in King Edward VIII. And he becomes the king and everybody's excited. But then this king, Edward, he falls in love with this American socialite named Wallace, I think, Wallace Simpson. And then he makes a commitment to her. He enters into a marriage covenant with her, and he gives up his allegiance to the crown. And and instead, his allegiance rests with his covenant love, and he was willing to give up his allegiance to, to his country, his kingdom, his own crown. And that's, that's what we see here in Jonathan. You, you can marvel at that story and think, I don't know, if I was in that place in 1931 and I was King Edward, would I have done that? Would I have given up, you know, in the modern scenario, would I have given up my rule, my reign, all the money that would have meant, the power that would have meant, the authority that would have meant, and, and the UK was a, a world leader in 1931? Would I have given up that prestige, that title that I already had? We need to think of that when we think of Jonathan He's the ultimate picture of this covenant love resulting in allegiance to God's kingdom, to God's anointed one. He is less concerned about his own kingdom. He's less concerned about his own future. He's less concerned about his own authority, his own rule, his own perceived self-rule. And he's more concerned with his allegiance to God's king and God's kingdom because of that. 
In his covenant love, it results in the ultimate allegiance. And David, he's still a little wary here. He's like, you know, okay, sure, you're going to agree to this plan, but how will I really know if Saul is angry with you? Who will tell me? What David's saying is, okay, sure, I believe you, but who's going to really tell me? Will I really find out? How, are you, how, how will you tell me? So Jonathan, he takes him out. He says, David, let's go out in the field. And he takes him out in the field. And he swears to him out in the field. He says, you're going to know my father's response, either the first or second night of the festival. And he risks his life. And he promises his allegiance to David instead of his father. And he says, if Saul plans to harm you, I'm going to make sure that I let you know. Or else, whatever harm Whatever harm that my father intends for you, may it come upon me. And he invokes this, the wrath of the covenant. He invokes this, the, the penalty for breaking the covenant on himself. And, and by doing that, he's saying, my allegiance is shifting from allegiance to my father to allegiance to you. Which is kind of ironic, right? David's, David's the one who's on the run. He's the one who's fleeing. He's, he's not a king. He he's, doesn't have any position. He doesn't have any authority yet. And yet Jonathan has faith in God's kingdom and faith in who God's called Jonathan, I mean David to be. And so Jonathan says, I'm going to put my faith in the anointed king, whether or not that's what I see right now or not. And then he says, just to make sure his allegiance is clear, he says, may the Lord be with you as, he pre- as he's been with my father Saul. What is he saying? He's acknowledging God anointed my father and now may God be with you like he's anointed him. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm acknowledging you're the one upon whom God's favor rests. You're the anointed king. My allegiance belongs to you. And then he follows through with that. And he risks his life. And he knows he's about to risk his life because he says, if I'm still alive at the end of all this, David... See, Jonathan knows what he's doing. He knows the commitment he's making. He, he knows he's, he's willing to lay down his life. And he knows his change of allegiance means he might give up his life. And he says, David, by the way, I'm asking something of you. If I'm still alive at the end of all this, would you keep your steadfast love with me? And if I'm not, would you, would you keep your steadfast love with my kids to their generations? And he makes a commitment to, to David he says, in effect, you know, David, please don't get rid of my children as heirs, apparent to Saul's kingdom. That would have been in the custom of, of in, the, in, the, in the Eastern world, the Near Eastern world would have, whenever a new king came in place, he would actually eradicate all of the heirs of the previous king. And Jonathan knows that David will be king by faith. And he says, my allegiance is with you. And so I'm risking it all. And I'm placing not only my life in your hands, but the life of my children in your hands. So Jonathan, he sees with eyes of faith who David is and takes the initiative. He moves and he makes even more significant with David and he, a covenant with David and he beseeches God to take vengeance on David's enemies and what he really is saying is, may God take vengeance on my own kingdom, my own father because he knows that his father, most likely, as he's gonna find out, what David's saying, if David, what David's saying is true, if Saul really is the enemy of David, then He's saying, if that's true, will God take vengeance on all your enemies? He's giving up his allegiance. If you're, if you're claiming to be a Christian this morning, I have a question for you. It's the same question applies for me. It applies for all of us. We need to ask ourselves, if we claim we're, we're willing to do whatever it takes for Jesus, are, are you willing to give up your allegiance to yourself, to your kingdom, to your rule, your perceived self-rule, your, your own authority, your, your own safety? Are you willing to give up your own allegiance to live for God's covenant kingdom? Are you willing to give up your own kingdom to live for his kingdom? Are you willing to give up your allegiance to to whatever things you think are your rights, your privileges? You know, think about that. What, What do you view as your rights, your privileges? Safety, security, financial stability, Maybe great relationships with other people, people accepting you. Whatever you think are your rights of your kingdom, are you willing to say, whatever the cost, God, I'm giving my allegiance to you, knowing it might cost me all of those things. That's what, that's what we see Jonathan here doing. And so, so he and, and David, they agree to this plan, and 
This festival begins the next day and everybody's in their proper place and the, the banquet table, we see this picture in Saul's back. It says he's against the wall and that just shows you another picture of, 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 of Saul and how he ruled. He was, he was afraid of people so he wanted to see everybody in the room. You know, I used to work for a government agency that would teach you to go and sit in a certain place so you can see everybody coming in and it was a little bit of paranoia, a little bit of safety at the same time but so you can, you can see everybody coming in and see everybody who is you know, a threat to you. And so Saul's sitting there, and, and Abner, his protector, is beside him. Jonathan's across from him. But David's seat is empty. And so Saul, it really speaks to David's character. Saul at first believes, well, David, surely he must become ceremonially unclean. Maybe that's why he wasn't here. That's why he's not here the first night. Maybe, maybe David's ceremonially unclean. That's why he's not showing up. He doesn't believe the worst in David, even though he wants to kill him. And so then he, he doesn't say anything about it. And then the next day happens, and it's clear that something else is going on. Because if David's still missing, he would have had time to become ceremonial clean. And, and so, you know, so he asks his son, he says, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal like his duty was? And, and we see that this shift in Jonathan, it, it doesn't just become a, an allegiance. He goes from being willing, he goes from committing his allegiance, being willing to to, to have his allegiance in the anointed one. And then Jonathan, his, his covenant love, it results in this commitment to the anointed one. It results in this ultimate commitment to David. He carries it out. He carries out his love. It, it doesn't just start in, in a willingness and then in a declaration of his allegiance like with us, we, we display a willingness to follow Jesus. We say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And then we say, I, I want to give up my kingdom and follow your kingdom. I want to I follow you, God, and your anointed king and give up allegiance to my own kingdom. But then it, it also is seen, this covenant love, if we have a covenant love for Jesus, it's seen in a commitment to the anointed one. There was an old group a few years back um, called the Proclaimers. And they had a song that my kids learned in VBS last year, actually. I thought that was kind of comical. And, and the words were, when I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be. I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, and they, they repeat themselves, but I'm not going to do that. Well, I know I'm going to be. I'm going to be the man who goes along with you. And he says that the, the chorus is, but I would walk 500 miles. And I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walked 1,000 miles to fall down at your door. Um, we, we love that song as a family. Our kids kind of love that song. It, it's kind of, it carries out this commitment that this guy has for this girl. And he, and he has this commitment to her. He'd do whatever it takes and he's, he's going to give up whatever it is. And wherever she goes, he's going to go and, and he's going to go along with her and walk 500 miles and walk 500 more just to, to fall down at her door after walking 1,000 miles. Kind of love that song, right? There's a, there's a sense of commitment there. Well, what we see here is, is no trivial commitment with Jonathan and David. We see Jonathan really, he commits all the way. When, when Saul notices that David is missing, he makes good on the commitment. He told David, I'll send you a signal whether or not you're welcome. And they arranged this signal. He says, David, if you're welcome, I'm going to shoot some arrows and you're going to be hiding by this maybe in or around this pile of rocks out there. We're not exactly sure. But David, I'm going to shoot some arrows by there and I'm committed to you that if you're welcome, I'm going to say, hey, there's the arrows. Come on back. But if not, I'm going to say it's beyond you. Jonathan was so sure of the fact that David was chosen by God. And he says, if, if, if you go away, it's because God's sending you away. And he's so committed to this relationship, this covenant relationship he has, that not only does he agree to the plan, when he, he gets there and Saul asks him, he says, hey, you know, Jonathan, where's, where's your best bud? Where's David? Where's he at? Jonathan commits all the way. And he carries through in his commitment. And he proceeds to tell Saul what they'd agreed upon. Now, interestingly enough, we don't have any commentary on on the validity of him lying to his dad or not. But he was, you know, well, some commentators would say, well, he's lying to protect the covenant king. He's lying to protect the life. So that's moral in that cause. But that's not the main idea. The main, the main point here is that Jonathan has a covenant love that's carried out in commitment, the ultimate commitment to David. 
And he proceeds to tell Jonathan, he says, you know, um, yeah, David went to, to go and sacrifice. And by the way, and he adds to it, he says, and not only that, his, his brother commanded him to go there. So he has his family obligation, and surely Saul won't be mad with that. And, but Saul is suspicious, and he gets angry with Jonathan. He says some really mean things about his mother. He said, you know, you're, you're son of this perverse woman. And it wasn't as much of an insult against his mother as it is he was insulting him. And he uses some perverse language there, an original language, and um, he's foul-mouthed, really. And it's clear that Saul knows now that David's going to be king. Saul sees David as a threat, and he says to Jonathan, don't you get it? If David stays alive, your kingdom is never going to be. You're never going to have your kingdom. You're never going to have any authority. You're never going to have any rule. So bring him to me so I can kill him. Your commitment would be challenged right then, wouldn't it? If you think, hey, that'd be pretty easy. It'd be pretty easy to say, you know what? Maybe I'll bring David to him. Maybe I'll bring him so that he can be killed. And I can have a kingdom of my own. Saul, he makes a mistake though. He, he thinks that this self-interest will appeal to Jonathan, but Jonathan has this covenant love, this commitment to David, and he stands up to his father, and he is angry, and he gets up in rage, and who knows, you know, if he's flipping the tables, I can just picture in my own mind, doesn't say that, but it, and he gets up in rage, and he's angry with his father. Why? Because he knows his father is challenging God's kingdom. And so David, Saul, I mean, Jonathan gets up because David has been defamed. You know, the interesting thing here is it says because you know, he, had, he had kind of embarrassed David. It, it, Jonathan wasn't as much concerned, concerned about his own reputation. He was concerned that, that Saul had belittled Jonathan's, I mean David's reputation. Um, look down there here real quick. It says, his, Jonathan knew his father's determined to put to death and it says in verse 34, Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second time. He's grieved, not for himself. He was grieved for the king. He was grieved for David. And it says, because his father had disgraced him. Who's the him there? The him is David. He was so committed that his anger wasn't self-interested anger. It was, it was because David had been disgraced. And, and he responded. Is that how we respond when the name of Jesus is disgraced? How do we respond? What's our commitment look like in the face of people challenging our king, our true King Jesus? What does it look like? How do we respond when Jesus is maligned? Do we stand up? Or do we kind of bow down to being accepted, bow down to our own kingdoms? Jonathan gets up, he's committed fully. And so Saul, he throws his spear at his own son now. And so Jonathan, he goes out. He's, he's, he's clearly evident that, Jonathan, that Saul wants to kill David. And so the next morning, Jonathan does exactly as planned. He follows through on his covenant commitment. He goes out and he, he shoots this arrow, or probably a few arrows, he says three, but we don't know exactly how many, but he, he shoots these arrows beyond the stone heap. And he calls out to his servant this, this code phrase. And he says, is not the arrow beyond you? Which was the code for, you're not welcome back here. And then, then Jonathan adds even more urgency to it. And he says, hurry. Obviously, the message is not for his servant, but for David. He says, hurry, be quick. Don't stay. He's risking everything. He's risking his kingdom to, to warn David so that David is safe and he passes this message unwittingly through this boy. This boy passes this message unwittingly. And then when the coast is clear, you know, David and Jonathan had arranged this not knowing who might be in the field, who might be around them. And so they have this code devised, but then Jonathan probably realizes, oh, nobody's around. They wait for the coast to be clear. He sends his servant back. He makes good on his commitment. He follows through on his covenant love for the king in the midst of this heartache and chaos. We see this this last result of covenant love. This, this covenant love that Jonathan has, it, it results in peace with the anointed one. It results in, in peace with God's chosen king. You know, it's kind of funny that, that Jonathan's last words just said go in peace when there really is no peace here, right? 
Jonathan's life is potentially in danger. David's life is in danger. How can there be peace? You know, Jonathan, he's, he's clearly upset. He waits and then probably goes towards David. David comes out of his hiding place and, and David pays homage to Jonathan. He falls on his, on his face to the ground three times and then they greet each other with a very common Near Eastern greeting. They kiss each other on the cheeks most likely and, and they cry because they knew that it meant everything was changing and David had to go. It meant that there was a cost to this covenant relationship. But because of their commitment and, and, and Jonathan's commitment and his willingness and his change of allegiance, he, he, he has still had peace in the midst of this. And we see the scene closing with, with Jonathan trusting ultimately in God. And he says, he says to David, he says, go in peace. Look down the very, very last part of, of the verse. Verse 42, chapter 20. It says, Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Why? Because we sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. Where ultimately is his hope? His hope's in God. He says, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. He has a faith in God's king that ultimately rests in God no matter what. And he says, he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. The scene, it it closes with, with this scene of Jonathan having a trust and a faith in God and his anointed one that brings him peace despite the fact that this is not a peaceful scenario. So he says, go in peace. Why? He has faith in God. He has faith in God's anointed one. He has faith in the covenant love that David has for him. Begins this long saga of David running from Saul and Jonathan having to support his father in the midst of things. The question really for us is, you know, as, as, as we encounter hardship, difficulty, sadness, they're weeping here in this passage, do, do you have that kind of peace that comes, not through circumstances being good, not through everything going our way, but do you have that peace that comes as a result of having a relationship with the covenant king? Do you have a faith and a trust in God that says, because, Lord, he's the covenant king, because you've made a covenant with me, ultimately, you see, it doesn't rest on our performance. It ultimately rests on the king's performance, unlike with David. Jesus comes to us, and he makes a covenant with us. He sheds his blood. We didn't shed our blood. But, but do we have a faith in Jesus, in that covenant king, that brings peace? Do we, do we truly have a covenant love for God? Because if we do, it's going to result in God giving us peace. It doesn't mean you're always going to have it, but it's as our focus is on the covenant king, as our focus is on the God who brings us the covenant, that we will have his peace. The question is, do we have a peace with God that comes from the covenant with the anointed one? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can have a peace despite circumstances. If, you're, if you've not yet placed your faith in God, you can know that kind of peace no matter how bad your life gets. And by the way, your life doesn't get better in some sense, you know, outwardly, externally. Your life may not get better. Jonathan's life didn't get better here. Jonathan's life got more complicated, more difficult. But he had a peace with God, and he had a covenant relationship that brought peace with God despite everything kind of falling apart. Jesus, the ultimate king, he said in John 14, 27, he's talking to his disciples and he doesn't tell his disciples that he's gonna make everything good for them. In fact, Jesus has said, you know, in this world you're gonna have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He doesn't say, you won't have any trouble. He says, no, you're gonna have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. What's he saying? He says, I'm giving you a kind of peace that doesn't rely upon the troubles you have or don't have. And so he tells his disciples in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. You know, what kind of, what kind of peace does the world offer? The, the world offers peace and financial stability. There's no peace in that. The world offers peace in, in a great relationship, but what happens when your relationships fall apart when people die? 
The world offers peace in this idealistic view of family that, you know what? Family will disappoint or go away. You can't take peace in those things. He says, peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, but I give to you. And here's the promise that the covenant king gives to all of us who believe and have placed our faith in him and his shed blood on our behalf. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says, go in peace, go in peace. There's this old hymn, his oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood. I love that, that old hymn. It's his oath. You know, ultimately, our hope doesn't even rest on our covenant commitment. It rests on the fact that he's made a commitment to us, and we have a covenant love because he's loved us. We're secure in him. We're secure in his covenant love. His oath, his covenant, his blood, his sacrifice that's made us blood brothers with Jesus, really. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is is sinking sand. Where is your hope? Where is your peace this morning? Isaiah 26 gives us a promise for those who are in Christ or in, in God, really. Isaiah was looking forward to, to really the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. In the end, Jonathan here is trusting in in his covenant relationship with David, knowing that even if he dies, David's going to be faithful to him, his children, generation after generation. Do you have the kind of trust that you're placing? No matter what happens, I know that Jesus has me. He holds me. Ultimately, what can the world do to me now? What can man do to me now? Man, Man can only kill you, Jesus said. He can't take away your life, ultimately, your eternal life. He can't take away your soul. So your life in him is secure. He promises to keep you to the end. And he promises peace to us no matter what as we trust in him. As we give him our will, our willingness to live for him, our allegiance, our our supposed self-rule, our commitment, he gives us his peace and everlasting love and he promises to keep us to the end. Amen? Well, let's stand. If the band will go ahead and come up and we will sing.